I'm Michael Saltzman. This event, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is the major highlight in terms of poetry at this year's uh, festival. Uh, and it is my uh, great honor and uh, pleasure uh, to introduce today's uh, two poets. The Clorinda Harris Poetry Prize is named for one of Baltimore's proudest gifts to the world of poetry. For more than 30 years, Clorinda Harris has taught her art to thousands of students, turning them into colleagues through the vivacious application of her kindness, her enthusiasm, and her professionalism, and by virtue of her wide expertise as a poet, editor, and publisher. In establishing this prize in her name, City Lit Press honors an individual who honors writing and honors us all. Clorinda, would you please stand? Through the uh, generosity of the City Lit Board and our director, Greg Wilhelm, it became my responsibility to choose the first winner of this soon-to-be annual competition. Laura Chauvin, a writer in Maryland, made it easy for me since she combines within her person and within her art many of the same excellencies that we find in the life and work of Clorinda Harris. Laura received her undergraduate degree from the Dramatic Writing Program at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, obtained a master's degree in teaching from Montclair State University, and after working as a high school teacher and as a program assistant with the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation Program in Poetry, she studied with the poets Maria Mazziotti, Gilan, Madeline Tiger, Laura Boss, and Renee Ashley. She currently serves as an artist in education for the Maryland State Arts Council and has taught poetry and writing on behalf of City Lit and the Maryland Humanities Council, all organizations dear to my heart. Laura's prose and poetry for children have appeared in Highlights Magazine and her other articles in the Baltimore Sun, Baltimore Magazine, and Baltimore's Child. Her poetry has been widely published in such magazines as Lips, the Patterson Literary Review, Global City, and the Little Pawtuxent Review. Her work has twice received honorable mention for an Allen Ginsberg Poetry Award, and her background in drama and television, journalism and teaching, childhood education and parenting all clearly inform her poetry with an acute and dramatic attention to the details of everyday life. In her workshops with children and adults, she asks them to, quote, stop and pay attention, because she feels that's where poetry begins. For example, one day she heard her son, who is here in the audience today, say, quote, tomorrow is going to be normal. And Laura turned this seemingly hopeful yet somehow chilling phrase into the kernel of a poem, because she knows all too well how strange and abnormal the everyday world can be. One of her poetic lodestars, the American poet William Stafford, in his famous poem about what to do with a pregnant doe found dead at the roadside, is a master of this approach. In her winning manuscript, Mountain, Log, Salt, and Stone, Laura enlivens her quotidian subjects, the carpet rolls in the title, uh, in the title poem, the pussy willow bud in the listening of plants, and the dogwood pedal in Because We Are Rushing to Catch the Bus, with a shrewd and powerful use of metaphor, a critical strategy all too often neglected in contemporary work. 
In the child's world, the log pile of carpet rolls become mountains to be scaled. Her mother's accent, quote, fits like an egg in her mouth. The pussy willow buds are, quote, cat toes walking up a mottled branch. And most wonderfully, the child inserts a bud into, quote, the foyer of her ear. This is the word surgeon's sure anatomical magic. So, too, the author's subtle command of poetic rhythm and a wide variety of poetic forms, ghazal and free verse to triolet and prose poems. From its lovely title to the powerful conclusion of its very last poem, Mountain, Log, Salt, and Stone, was the biggest and most imaginative submission in every way. It has now become a beautiful book. Please help me welcome Laura Chauvin to the stage, the inaugural winner of the Clorinda Harris Prize in Poetry. Thank you all for being here. Um, I'm just going to start by telling you this is one of those weird stories of how I learned that I, wo- that I won the award. Um, I teach for City Lit occasionally, and I was in an airport on New Year's Eve. It was a very love, actually, if you've seen that movie, moment. And I got a phone call from Greg Wilhelm, and I said to myself, why is Greg calling me um, on New Year's Eve? It just... It, seems so strange. What could be going on with City Lit program that he would be calling me? And um, of course, when he told me, I was trying not to cry at the Starbucks in the airport, calling my husband, who was at the other end of the terminal. Um, so it was just one of those strange life, life moments. But it started my year off great. And um, one of the greatest gifts of, of this award for me has been working with Michael, um, who so graciously invited me to his home and, and went through the entire manuscript with me. And Oh my gosh, what a gift it is when we find poetic mentors. So thank you, Michael. Can we give Michael a round of applause just for being great? So here's the book. And thank you to City Lit. It's it's fancier than a chapbook usually is. So thanks, Greg. Um, It has its own spine, so it's not a spineless book. All right, I'm going to read the first poem, and this one um, relates to one of the Dodge Poetry Festivals. I don't know if any of you have ever had a chance to go to that festival, but it it is just wonderful. And I went to the first one when I was um, 17 years old, the very first Dodge Festival, and I've, I've only missed a few in my time. I'm looking forward to going this year. And if you've been to that festival, it's, it's one of those experiences where you kind of start off in the rush of your day, and you, you have your tickets, and you get in the gate, and there are lots of people. Um, and by the time you've spent a few hours there just kind of absorbing the poetry and, and the voices, you just settle into a different zone, and that's the place that this poem comes from. Driving Home from the Poetry Festival, 1996. I would like to remember this night, compel my mind to hoard sounds, images, but Route 80 is featureless, dark and nothing more. I wish for some apparition, a fire in the sky, the carcass of an animal strewn across the road, its blood flashing in snapshots. 
tonight, words reached behind my eyes like seawater, into my throat like desert air. This night should be remembered. My mother, with me big in her belly, drove some other featureless highway, the rest of the world home in bed. A voice said, pull over, and she did. Even though she was alone, she listened to that voice and watched from the shoulder. A darkened car hurtled the wrong way, weaving the road toward her and me. Tonight, I say, speak to me, voice, so I will remember. But I am closer to home with every mile. Knowing this drive will be forgotten, not even hearing the radio drone, words burn in my mind. There is no room for road or darkness or music. A voice I recognize now as my own has whispered, mother, blood, belly, carcass, car, desert. These words anchor themselves just long enough for me to write them here. Um, the poem, The Listening of Plants, comes from a, a true story which has become part of our family mythology. Mention the word pussy willow to my mom, and it's sure to set her giggling. She still doesn't understand. And I think the poem um, was kind of a response to, to that story, to what happened. And um, when I finish the poem, I, I think you'll see it's, it's kind of like saying... You should have known I was going to be a poet. The Listening of Plants On the buffet where she kept her celadon dishes, Mother placed a vase of pussy willows, Hurried out of their branches. The buds were cat toes, Walking up a mottled branch, Miniature koalas hanging on their eucalyptus In a scattered line. I snapped one off the twig and rolled the bud on the flats of my thumb and finger. Its smoky gray coat, how I imagined koala fur might feel. I rubbed the willow bud along the bone of my jaw, wanting to know how a plant can wear animal skin. It was too small, like touching nothing. I splayed my hand along its curves, felt the hairs rise in the divot of my palm. I would have needed a sweater of willow to be satisfied. Instead, I slipped it into my ear. How did I know a pussy willow was the right shape for the foyer of my ear, long haul leading to the eardrum and the bones behind? The bud rested there, and I listened, wanting to hear what it had to say, which was quiet, which was the muted listening of plants. When I asked mother to extract a pussy willow from my ear, I couldn't explain its presence, how I listened and heard its secret. My son is looking at me, so I'm going to read the next one for him, since it's about a conversation that we had. I don't think he's heard this one yet. Um, it's called Tomorrow is Going to be Normal, and 
the the longer the older my children get and and the longer I'm writing poetry it seems I I think I have like a bus stop suite going somehow the the walk either to or from the bus stop with the kids seems to be a, a great source of inspiration for me so this one is called tomorrow is going to be normal walking home from the school bus my son says tomorrow is going to be normal he speaks with the confidence of relief when every day is the same he can breathe each morning i tell myself today is the day I wait for the remarkable to land on my shoulder or call me on the phone. Sometimes it is a fortune written on the tag of my tea. Sometimes it is a bird. Other days, I miss the quiet calling to attention. I go to bed tired. My son knows there is comfort in monotony. Do I really want the phone to ring? It could be the lottery or a hospital calling. He thinks my life is enough, the mildness of the room, when I am the only thing moving in it. No, I must begin each day wanting the next few hours to jolt me out of sameness. He shakes his head that we could be so different, we both find remarkable. I'm going to read the title poem, Mountain Log, Salt, and Stone. Um, those of you who are writers have probably done this exercise, I know Shirley has, where you're assigned to write down something like 50 to 100 memories, and you're just dashing them off as quickly as you can. The point of the exercise, you realize by the time you get to the end, isn't really recording memories, but it's those places where um, you find something you didn't realize you had remembered, or you start to ask yourself, why did I remember that thing or that person? So this is a poem about that. Um, it's a poem about a person who stayed in my memory, and I couldn't, I couldn't understand why, and the poem addressed the question of, of why I remembered him. Mountain, log, salt, and stone. The mountain is taller than I, halfway to the ceiling of our new living room. This is how carpets are delivered piled in long, round rolls. Put a penny in your mouth, and you'll smell them, acrid and heavy and new, sour and exciting. With my brother, I skate over the wood floor in socks, try to crash the mountain of carpets. Climb it, and we are king and queen of the log pile. We cannot fell or budge them. These logs have no rot, No rings to mark the fire or flood. The disasters are all ahead of us. When Dad is away, we eat fast food. French fries at the new stone hearth. In two years, our brother, the child my mother is carrying, will bang his chin on this stone and nearly sever his tongue with his teeth. There will be blood on the rug, the salty taste of it in the air. But tonight, the scent of salt and oil is good. Furniture is scant. We gather on the floor around the fire. The young painter stands by the window. He has stopped rolling the walls and joined us for dinner. My mother is somewhere in the room. The painter watches her. He has dark hair 
and the youthful, slender form my father has outgrown. I watch the way his mouth moves when he looks away from my mother. The muscles of his back are taut with longing. Less than ten years in this country, her accent still fits like an egg in her mouth. The painter is not the first to mistake her round, elegant vowels for virtue. I want her to take offense, to fire him. But she is as kind and inattentive to him as she is to anyone. Angry for her sake, I begin to love my mother with a viciousness the painter can't know. I pull her to sit with us by the fire, meals spread on our knees, and let the warm salt dissolve on her tongue until it burns there like a pungent kiss. And that poem, I think it's important to say, is, is one of those that begins as a family story and then takes on a life of its own. Um, when I first wrote the poem in workshop, um, someone asked me afterward, where's your mother from? And when I said she's British, they were really disappointed. <laughs> because the... the the image in the poem just didn't fit with, with their concept of um, how she would sound. So I think the characters start to become their own characters. And, and this is something that I find in working with um, kids, especially middle and high schoolers a lot, um, especially when I work with any troubled teens. Uh, we talk a lot about the fact that the, the poem becomes an artifact separate from the experience. And, and when children are struggling or dealing with emotions that are very powerful, it's important for them to have that artifact and be able to separate from the experience through, through the art of poetry. So um, that's something that I've really enjoyed doing as a poet in the schools. I think I'm just going to read one more. I'm going to read the second of the bus stop suite. <laughs> I have to write more now. Called Because We Were Rushing to Catch the Bus. Um, this poem actually came from a series, and I was writing back to poems written by William Stafford in this, in this book. I, I kind of felt like he was writing letters and I was writing responses back to him. This is what I'm doing today. Well, it's a little different for me. This is what I'm doing. So I want to read the Stafford poem that inspired um, the poem that, that I'm sharing with you. It's called The Light by the Barn. The light by the barn that shines all night pales at dawn when a little breeze comes. A little breeze comes breathing the fields from their sleep and waking the slow windmill. The slow windmill sings the long day about anguish and loss to the chickens at work. The little breeze follows the slow windmill and the chickens at work till the sun goes down. Then the light by the barn again. So that's William Stafford's poem. And here is my letter back to him because we were rushing to catch the bus. We did not notice the rain. Too late for umbrellas, we ran down the sidewalk, wishing we'd taken the car. Because we ran under rain-soaked trees, the children's heads were damp when I kissed them at the corner. Because the children were gone, I walked home alone, dishes in the sink, waiting. 
Because of the dishes, I bent my head before the kitchen window. A petal fell from my hair. A pink thumbprint against metal. Pink against the gray day. Pink against the absence of children. It shook me awake. Because we were rushing to catch the bus, I carried beauty unknowing. Thank you. That was just, just wonderful. Uh, well, this is uh, a peak moment uh, every year uh, to have uh, our major poetic uh, guest and uh, certainly one of the highlights of this year's festival. Uh, in the Oxford Companion to 20th Century Poetry in English, Stanley Plumley is described as the most English of American poets but his ethos is distinctly Midwestern and, to my ear, Southern. He was born in Barnesville, Ohio in 1939 and raised in the farm country of Virginia and Ohio. His father was a lumberjack and welder. The family moved from farm work to carpentry and back again to farming. He was educated at Wilmington College, a Quaker school in Ohio, and at Ohio University, where he received his master's in 1968 and did coursework toward a PhD. While he was in Europe on a Guggenheim Fellowship from 73 to 74, his father died from a heart attack, the result of chronic alcoholism. The poet has been frank in acknowledging the central role that his father played in the evolution of his work, going so far as to call his volume of new and selected poems from 1970 to 2000, Now That My Father Lies Down Beside Me, surely one of the most beautiful and evocative titles in contemporary poetry. His more autobiographical poems, often depicting a working-class rural childhood and fraught with the tensions of a difficult family dynamic, not to mention the other vicissitudes of his father's life, suggest a number of parallels with the life and work of James Wright, another powerful poet born in the Buckeye State. It would be a mistake, however, to overemphasize the Freudian dimensions of his work. Many of his major poems are devoted to an acute description of the natural world and its rhythms. His birds, flowers, and trees are actual things or archetypes, not merely metaphors. Stanley Plumley is firmly situated in a line of English poetic descent. In an interview published in a 1996 issue of the Boston Review, he admitted to being a romantic with an interest in dailiness, the transformation of the quotidian into the universal. He has said, quote, the essence of lyric poetry is the moment and memory. You lose something if it's just one or the other. In addition to his Guggenheim Fellowship, Stanley Plumley has received an Ingram Merrill Foundation Fellowship, three grants from the National Endowment for the Arts, and an Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. His first collection, In the Outer Dark, won the Delmore Schwartz Memorial Prize. His third, Out of Body Travel, won the William Carlos Williams Award and was nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Altogether, he's the author of nine volumes of poetry, the most recent of which is Old Heart, from 2009. 
The very model of a modern man of letters, Stanley has taught at Louisiana State University, Ohio University, Princeton, Columbia, too many to mention, not to mention his years of service as a professor of English at the University of Maryland and his involvement with the Bread Loaf Writers Conference. He served as editor of the Ohio Review and the Iowa Review, as well as co-editor with Michael Collier of the new Breadloaf Anthology of Contemporary Poetry. As if the poetry were not enough, Stanley Plumley is a true scholar and master of prose style. He has written a book of essays on poetry, argument and song, sources and silences in poetry, co-edited the collected work of one of his strongest contemporaries and one of my great favorites, William Matthews, and most recently produced a brilliant book on his most important forebearer as a naturalist philosopher in verse, Posthumous Keats, A Personal Biography. There are poems by Stan that you will never forget, poems like Infidelity, Horse in the Cage, Constable's Clouds for Keats, and Cunit's Tending Roses. They come from every stage of his writing career, and once you've heard his sonorous and mellifluous performance of them, it is impossible not to hear that same voice in your head while reading the poems to yourself. On a personal note, as both physician and polio survivor, his magnificent poem, The Iron Lung, has the greatest resonance for me. In his beautiful introduction to the collected poems of William Matthews, what Plumley says of his friend could just as easily be said of him. Quote, he is continually a writer of the controlled embrace. As in W.S. Merwin's recent collection, The Shadow of Sirius, the poet begins one of his poems with the assertion that, quote, stories come to us like new senses. It seems to me that this is exactly the experience of reading one of Plumley's poems. And of the man, we should remember what Stan says of his hero in Posthumous Keats. Quote, Keats of all poets cannot be divided between the artist and the man. In October of 2009, one of America's most important scholar poets was appointed the ninth Poet Laureate of the State of Maryland. I cannot think of anyone more deserving of this honor. Please help me welcome him to the stage. I'm just going to read... uh new poems, take advantage of your kindness, and uh, see how that goes. Cancer. Mine, I know, started at a distance 520 light years away and fell as stardust into my sleeping mouth at birth or that time when I was 10, lying on my back, looking up at the cluster called the Beehive, or by its other name in the constellation Hercules, Cancer, the crab, able to move its nebula projections backwards and forwards, side to side, in the tumor Hippocrates describes as carcinoma from carcino, the analog, in order to show what being cancer looks like. Star, therefore, to start, like waking on the best day of your life to feel this living and immortal thing inside you. 
You were in love. You were a saint. I don't know what they're doing out there. Okay. You were going you were going to walk the sunlight blessing water. You were almost word for word forever. The crown, the throne, the thorn. Now to see the smoke shining in the mirror. The graduated dark down the hallway inside it. Now to see the old loved landscape fading from the window, the bluer depth of blue remembered in the cornflower, the sun on snow burning in the tree, the road like a ribbon torn, and the young man who resembles you opening a door in the half-built house you helped your father build, saying in your voice, come forth. This is one of those words you get very tired of hearing. Uh, The concept, perhaps, more than anything. Perspective, like everything in perspective, it's very difficult. Perspective. Margaret says it's nothing more than perspective. She's right, of course, perspective being the art of delineating solid objects upon a plain surface so as to produce the same impression of relative positions and magnitudes or of distance as the actual objects do when viewed from a particular point. Oxford Standard. The point being the full and light-filled moon looked at here in mid-October from the perspective of walking away from it, down Beacon Court. Perspective was what I lacked an ability with when I was an art student trying to sight down the row of different storied buildings on the far side of the street, each one distinct yet connected, as in a hopper or a trio sun shadow, or pencil-marking rain. Night, though, is another thing altogether. I just turned to consider the blue cloud passing like a floating island nation on the opposite end of the sky, then turned back only to realize how high the moon had traveled, had in no time risen as if lifted. Perspective, Margaret said, like the problem I had drawing depth of field, the illusion of a line diminishing the famous looming stones of graves in Queens foreshadowing the skyline of Manhattan. Since perspective is as much about the imagination as it is about Brunelleschi, as memory too, like too much in our lives, is perspective. And between now and then, often 
all we have. Those, for instance, whom we've loved and unloved, forming a line behind us, eventually fade. In the long century photograph to the size of children or the half of half of nothing of what they were. I don't have the answer. Come close, we say, but keep your distance. As if perspective were a dance. And as you walk away, you'll disappear as if you'd not existed. We're never here. This is a very new poem, and it's kind of a monster, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, it's called Gray. Uh, do you recall that gray can be spelled uh, in two ways? Uh, one, an American spelling, I like to think, with an A, and the other, an English spelling uh, with the E. I hope that's true. <laughs> Death, I've decided, is gray. And for me at least, not the Raphaelian angel gray of doves, nor the gray-brown hermit gray of Whitman's thrush, shy and hidden, nor the English gray of lawns leading to the limestone gray of brideshead's, but the mining gray of Phillipsburg the silver in the ground, or the asphalt gray of parking lots drifting coast to coast, especially through Ohio, especially like the nickel-diming rain that starts each morning somewhere in the past and fills the day. The remnant dressed in black, the bride in white. I saw them more than once and knew the circle of their color, a gray nowhere in nature unless the wind or breath of life or air walled in suggests a gray interior in things, the way we see it in the mirror manifest in hair and one-time lyric of the face, the changes imperceptible but there, the same warm look of ash turning into smoke, though heavy like a leaf, like leaves in Madame Bovary my mother's favorite. They're gray on gray, the undertone that Flaubert loves, a shading of the soul, its little deaths, the Emmas and the Annas, the women of the century, who understand how gray is like a cancer nothing cures, the kind of cancer on our rounds we walk among, ministering the wounded and the dying like Whitman in the war in Washington, Quaker to the core. I give all sorts of sustenance, berries, peaches, wines, biscuits, and tobacco, shirts and certain articles of clothing, handkerchiefs and paper, envelopes and stamps, and when I have it, small sums of money, bright new ten-cent and five-cent bills. The gray night, leaking everywhere the dark. Whitman and his lists, writing the soldiers' letters 
letters made of tallies out of lists. As all writing must be, black on white, a poetry against the god oblivion and the soft gray earth under the hard gray stone. Gray, the gravity will see in the camera of the eye between life and death the photograph of spirit, flesh, and blood, something like a smear of egg and sperm studied through a lens. My thoughtful baby sister in her Sunday special dress, her eyes half closed to filter out the sun. I'm thinking too beside her, leaning on the doorway my childish hand, a shadow at my head. 1944, our uncles in the war, gray gabardine. My sister will outlive me in that dress, who one day posed a picture thin as air. We think the light is blinding. It is failing. This is, I wasn't planning on this. Um, in honor of Mr. Poe, uh, I have a sort of Poe-like poem that uh, also has a lot of quotation in it and uh, outre literary reference, but uh, what the hell, you know. <laughs> We're all readers. Uh, I spent uh, a couple of years ago uh, an early... It was after th- right after Thanksgiving, uh, pre-winter uh, week in a place I've gone to many times before, Godforsaken Johnson, Vermont. Um, it, there's nothing there but a little art colony. Uh, they're slowly buying up the town, thank God, so maybe there'll be a restaurant uh, sooner or later. Uh, but there's a wonderful river that runs through Johnson, Vermont, called the Gihon. It's a biblical reference. Uh, G-I-H-O-N. Um, and uh, it, it, where they put you up is not the most uh, uh, luxurious of spots. And uh, and I was, guess I was on the second or third floor trying to sleep. And uh, as usual, was awake about three in the morning. And um, just as I was waking, I heard these crows going up and down the river, they'd first go this way. They just seemed to turn around and come back all the time, making that wonderful crow noise that crows make. Well, maybe not so wonderful, but uh, yeah. Well, it, it was enough to keep you awake. So it's the crows at 3 a.m. I loved writing this first line, I have to admit. Um, the politically correct, perfect snow of Vermont. Undulant, under the lightly bruised, moonlit-backed, becoming storm clouds, slowing, then speeding, just above the lines of blue spruce on Mount Mansfield, here in what I'm told is the state's cloudiest county, vaguely an analogy 
for the plate tectonics of the blankets constantly shifting from the left to the right side of my body, pulling the heart until by dawn I'm holding on, waking with the cold, somehow looking at my hands in the pearl dark that looked like the first fall castings of the sycamore, those pocked dry leaves that were my mother's final hands, sallow, dying coloring, mapping liver spots, root-like veining texturing the underdermal surfaces. The test, writes Fitzgerald, in an essay called The Crack-Up of a First-Rate Intelligence, is the ability to hold opposing ideas in the mind at the same time, yet retain the ability to function. He couldn't, he said, so he cracked like a plate. He is trying to update Keats's notion of negative capability. That is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact. A reason, Coleridge, for instance, would let go by a fine, isolated verisimilitude caught from the penetralium of mystery, from being incapable of remaining content with half-knowledge. When I heard the crows, like raven geese, rending the dark, filling the falling snow with wings, I thought for a moment they were speaking or singing. Crows at the hour, Fitzgerald again, of a dark night of the soul. Poe-like crows, chasing back and forth in a quandary or a quarrel, up and down the Gien. Then they disappeared. Let me drift back into sleep to find my hands holding my mother's hands, as if to help her rise from the cold, dead dream light of Vermont. Stephen's twenty or so blackbirds may differ in their scale, but their beauty of inflections and innuendos is no less present in the settled order passing out of hearing, out of sight, thus the river's moving, the blackbird must be flying. Two half-knowledges, or halves, of one knowing. Those who love us now, who live in the air, live in a loneliness we can only imagine. Michael uh, mentioned uh, this little Quaker college I attended in Ohio. Uh, uh, I was raised a Quaker on my father's side. Um, I guess it was about 1960, uh, in the early spring, when a very pleasant round fellow came to the campus trying to recruit people. Uh, to go to the South to help um, register voters. His name was Ralph Abernathy. Um, 
very pleasant guy. I spent a lot of time in his company. That He was there almost a week. Um, and he convinced me that that's what I should do for part of my next summer. So some of us did go down there. Um, uh, we were in a very safe part of Mississippi. It wasn't like Philadelphia, Mississippi at all. 400 mourners. The sizes of the crowds in those burn, baby burn days were at best estimates depending on who the police, the press, the thousands in protest was counting. The body count, we called it, and after the arrest, we were lined up alphabetically for fingerprints and phone calls. It wasn't all that much, though the numbers made a difference since they argued significance. That was later, at the dead end of the 60s. The rallies against the war, mixed with the killings of the Kennedys and King, and the nuclear meltdown of democracy at the convention in Chicago. But at the beginning of the decade, it was man on the moon, hand on the heart. Ralph Abernathy, who had recruited most of us, came by one day just to say hello. We were on the white side of the table, the soon-to-be-eligible black voters on the other. Greenville was as liberal as it got in Mississippi, the delta almost as ancient as the flooding of the Nile, the names, the spellings, the signatures, like maps of a world once flat. And the heat and the dog's breath, weight of the air, and the wet dust needlework of the pine. People had died here under a different register. As thousands more, thousands of nautical miles southeast would die who had not voted. Ralph said the numbers finally didn't matter. The idea of change was enough. He meant an idea whose time has come. The few new voters each seemed wise and old, older than anyone we knew, older than parents or grandparents, older than the country or anger's life expectancy. They had looked into the sun. They had looked into it a long time. The Carter family newspaper spoke of joy with sometimes grief, as if the happiness of change felt like a passage. This is 50 years now, gone. It's crazy that so much of it came back to me, witnessing the funeral of a child. I should not have started this poem. <laughs> the countless a uh, car cortege wound through the town's winter wastes as if the hearse could not quite find its way. There is no end to the death of a child. So that when we detoured past her elementary school, everyone Everyone 
was out in the cold, in the hundreds, waving. Mm. Thank you. The best words are writ from true emotion. I hope you enjoyed the reading of our two poets as much as I did. Thank you so much.